Wives, in the same way, accept the authority of your husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won over without a, without a word by their wives' conduct. When they see the purity and reverence in your of our your lives, do not adorn yourself outwardly by braiding your hair and by wearing gold ornaments or fine clothing. Rather, let your adornments be the inner self with the lasting beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in God's sight. It was in this way long ago that the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by accepting the authority of their husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. You have become her daughters as long as you do what is good and never let fears alarm you. Husbands, in the same way, show consideration for your wives and your life together, paying honor to the women as the weaker sex, since they too also they too are also heirs of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing may hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, have unity in spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you are called, that you might inherit a blessing. For those who desire life and desire to see good days, let them keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's an interesting text to preach on. When Gus contacted me um, in May, to see if I was available this Sunday to preach and another Sunday in September, he said I could use the text from his sermon series on 1 Peter throughout the summer, um, or I could choose one that I would prefer. Now, I must admit my first response when realizing this text in chapter 3 begins with wives um, accepting the authority of their husbands my first response was, no way. <laughs> and then I wrote three pages to share with you about why no way, which I won't share with you. Um, these and several others have been used for centuries to keep women silent, submissive, out of leadership, out of power in the church. My daughter actually said to me when I told her that this was the passage, she said, do you think maybe Gus was playing a joke on you? And I said, well, I don't know. I don't think so. It was part of his series. But then I realized that um, this has to be preached. It has to be considered. We have to examine these verses because they're key examples of how Scripture can be used and abused through the centuries. And as well as today, how we need to critically study in depth the passages that challenge us, often clash with our cultural understandings of human life and of God. As with any verse or passage, it needs to be read in the context of when it was written and what is around it as we read it, um, what is said before and after, how it weighs against the great um, threads or the great themes of scripture. 
and there are messages of Jesus that are woven in and out and through the Bible. And so how do we weigh this particular passage with things such as community and faith and love and grace and forgiveness and judgment and covenant and incarnation? These are all themes within the scriptures that all have to be taken into account as we look at one particular verse. These, along with the life and teachings of Jesus in the four Gospels, the great themes, seem to supersede or overarch a particular passage, or at least needs to influence how we read it. And we need to look at broad and deep in terms of our understanding of Scripture, particularly when we look at just one verse and we say, ha, this is what it means. So how do we understand Peter's message about husbands and wives and the life of the church and then relate it in a broader way to ourselves today? Because that is the point. How do we take the scripture and how do we say, well, where, what does it mean for us today in our time and our culture? Well, a couple of things to remember when we're looking at these verses with Peter. First of all, they were written in the year 67 not 1967, 67. And Christians were scattered throughout all of Asia Minor and different cultures, but there were two concerns that influenced this book or this letter. First, it was a very strong belief that Jesus was coming again very, very, very soon. The end was near. And those who believe, those who suffered for Jesus, will very soon know his glory and his love. That's the first thing that influenced the writing. The second thing was that it was, there was in the knowledge of Christians at the time, the horrid persecutions of the church. It was not long before these verses were written that Nero had burned down the city of Rome. Christians were blamed for this event. And there was a campaign that Nero had started to simply wipe out Christians, the memory of Christians. And so the folks who are receiving this letter have heard about all of the persecutions Christians experienced in the city of Rome. They were rolled in pitch and made into flaming torches, burned alive. They were taken and put in, surrounded by dead animal skins and then hung up so that wild dogs could come and tear them apart. The memory of this was in the people who received this letter. And so the beginnings of the church were very fragile right now. Christians didn't want to do anything to ignite the wrath and the persecution again, especially since Jesus was coming soon. And so the wisdom and the argument that is within 1 Peter is that this was not the time to do anything that would put the faith at risk. 
There's no better way to do than to have husbands and wives arguing over this new faith. Particularly if the woman became the disciple and her husband did not. And the point of a woman being quiet about her faith was so that she could be an example of reverence and faith, so that she could show that her faith was real. But also, the admonition was given so that let's not muddy the waters. Don't put the entire faith at risk. You don't have to promote lots of change in the culture because Jesus is going to be coming real soon. And you don't have to worry about these things. Just live faithfully. That was the thinking of the time. But we're also left with those verses because what do we do with them now in our time and age? How do we look at these words for the church that is not persecuted in the United States? Does it have relevance for us? Well, some people believe that the exact words and the intent is exactly how it is still today. And there are churches that still preach that. But others have taken these verses and similar verses in other letters and looked at them within the original meaning of the culture, the intention of why the letter was written, and they've concluded that, yes, at that time and place it was the direction of the church. God continues to reveal to us, and we need to continue to discern. We need to continue to study and to grow in our faith. And so women don't need to be silent in the church. Slavery is a sin against humanity and God. And now as a church, we are discerning the place in our understanding of LGBTQ people within our community of faith. This passage and how the church has wrestled with the meanings of inclusiveness of women is the same as our debates and our divisions in the United Methodist Church today over our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. Your theme within the scriptures. In verse independent of a greater theme within the scriptures. Themes that present God as a God of compassion and grace, a God of continuing to reveal a God of mystery, a God that we do not ever completely understand. Nor can we take one verse and say, well, this is the meaning without understanding the context and the culture. You see, ultimately, it's not about one verse being looked at in isolation. But it is understanding within context Yes, God speaks to us through scripture, but also God speaks to us through our experiences, through our minds, through our thinking, through our reasoning, 
through our relationships, our church traditions. And how do we listen with our hearts open, knowing that God continues to speak and transform us? Because the very heart of Christianity is transformation. One of my favorite authors is Sue Monk Kidd. Now, you might be familiar with her name. She wrote Secret Life of Bees, but also she wrote several other books of faith describing her faith journey. And this is one, a piece of what she wrote um, when, in an article which is called You Can't Force the Heart. And she was relating an experience she had when she was 12 years old. She said this, I'd gone to a nursing home with a youth group from my church. Frankly, I was there under duress. My mother had not heard my pleas that I be spared the unjust sentence of visiting a nursing home when my friends were enjoying the last day of summer vacation at the city swimming pool. Smarting from this inequity, I stood before this ancient-looking woman holding a bouquet of cray paper flowers. Everything about her saddened me. The worn-down face, the lopsided grin, the tendrils of gray hair protruding from under her crocheted lavender cap. I thrust the bouquet at her, and she looked at me, a look that pierced me to the marrow of my 12-year-old bones. Then she spoke these words that I've never forgotten for 30 years. You didn't want to come, did you, child? The words stunned me. Oh, yes, I wanted to come, I protested. But then she smiled at me, looking deep in my eyes, and she said, it's okay. You can't force the heart. I tried to forget her. For a while, I hated her for the rebuke. Then I passed it off as a harmless twittering of an old woman. Years later, though, as I began to follow the journey of my spirit, I discovered the truth in her words. You can't force the heart. Genuine compassion cannot be, cannot be forced from the outside. It comes from within. Now, when Sue Monk Kidd wrote this, she described the very essence of an alive faith, one that was steeped in compassion and transformation. You see, deep compassion for another human being cannot be forced, not imposed from the outside. Typically, it doesn't happen quickly. 
There are events that occur in our lives that shape and form us. Sometimes a mission trip starts that, or a worship service with the youth together Sunday nights. Or we speak to someone that we know for years, but they change us in some way. Most times we don't wake up one day and say, well, I'm just going to be a compassionate person, because, but we do choose, we can choose to follow a way of life that starts to shape and form us. Through study and prayer and listening to one another and caring for each other, we start a journey that opens our hearts, that changes us into people who are compassionate toward all who come and all we meet each and, each and every day. You see, compassion is the life of God within us. It can't be forced upon us, but it can begin to grow within us. And it grows through awarenesses, sometimes through pain and through suffering, sometimes with deep reflection, but it always starts. Faith is a process. It is a change in our lives. It is a renewal, and it is continuous throughout our lives. To me, it's a cycle of life, death, and resurrection over and over and over. And we grow deeper and deeper in love with Jesus. That's how God works. Have you ever noticed that God works through process and change? You know, creation, the seed, the sprout, the bloom, the fruit, butterflies, they begin with caterpillar and the larvae and the chrysalis and the butterfly. Scientists say now the universe is simply unfolding and expanding with new stars and planets. The world is very different than what it was hundreds and thousands of years ago. The birth of a child is stage by stage by stage. So why would we think, why would we believe that God would design our hearts and souls any different? our desire for meaning and faith any differently. We are always in the process of transformation. God is always revealing something new to us, always giving us new awarenesses and insights, deeper understandings. My faith at the very core is about God being compassion and grace, but my faith has grown and changed through the years. It had to because my soul is searching for the love of God. And as we see God more fully, we come to a greater understanding. I call it the sermon titled, Reshuffling Our Lives. We continually do it because God continually reveals to us something new. We see God in everything and everyone and we are a part of all of the creation and the process of life and transformation. Jesus starts to take shape in us, and we start to live compassionate toward others. There's an old story of someone who was a seeker of wisdom, and he went to the wise one, and he said to him, 
When will the dawn come? Will it come when I could tell a sheep from a dog? And the wise one said, no, no. It will not come when you could tell a sheep from the dog. Well, will dawn come when I could tell the difference between two kinds of trees? And the wise one said, no, it will not come when you could tell the difference between two kinds of trees. Then when will dawn come? He asked the wise one. And the wise one answered, the dawn will come when you can see each person as your brother or your sister. To see with our soul is to greet the dawn. My friends, we're all in this life together. Like it or not, we're bound to one another by a creating and loving God. Our job is not to put up barriers. Our job is not to label people. Our job is not to decide who's in and who's out. It is to look with the eyes of love and compassion. The Christ in me sees the Christ in you. That's how we should live, so that we are healing presences and we are channels of blessing for all. May it be so.